Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, this is Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Fulter Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, I have a comedian come on to play a clip of one of their bits and then discuss how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week, we welcome Moshe Kasher back to the show. Moshe is a stand-up comedian best known for his Live in Oakland special and The Honeymoon special, which he released with his wife, fellow comedian and past Good One guest Natasha Leggero. Both specials are currently on Netflix. Moshe is also an in-demand punch-up artist brought in by studios to make scripts funnier. Also, in 2012, he released a memoir, Kasher in the Rye, the subtitle of which says it all, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. Last time he was on Good One, when he was promoting his Comedy Central show Problematic, we discussed a joke of his that evolved between two albums. But this week, we talk about the thing in comedy he's best at, crowd work. Crowd work is a, is, is kind of a controversial form of comedy, in a way. I think the, the knock on crowd work is best summed up by this tweet from comedy writer Colin Crawford. I can't think of ways of making people laugh, and now it's your problem. When people look down on it, it's because it's seen as a cheap way to get an easy laugh. Hey, what do you do for a living? That's dumb. Standing ovation. Works every time. But crowd work, when done by masters, is the closest stand-up gets to magic, both the David Copperfield and the Harry Potter kind. When a comedian can riff a brilliant joke based on a stray comment from a person they never met, it feels like seeing a rabbit being pulled out of a hat. But, you know, for real. For someone like Moshe Kasher, who really is so good at it, he aspires to elevate this wonder to the point of spiritual connection. Can he bring the entire audience together in a moment? And then the question for him was, how do you record something where the whole point is that it's instantaneous and fleeting? The result is his recent album, Crowd Surfing Volume 1. While we're talking about live things, I'm going to quickly plug my live show at Union Hall on April 2nd. I'm going to be doing many good one interviews with three of my absolute favorite up-and-coming comedians, Joe Firestone, Pat Regan, and Z-Way Fumado, plus a special surprise from Sam Taggart. So, now for Moshe and the wild story of a person in his Washington, D.C. audience. You got one? Is that, by the way, is that, are you on a date right now? Um, no, this is my gay call. Gay colleague, that's very cool. <laughs> Gotta make sure that you set that up. He's not just your regular colleague, he's your gay colleague. That's cool, I do that a lot. I'm like, this is my black friend. This is my gay coworker. 
unfortunately is my lesbian wife. I have a lot of the same set of issues. Hello, hello, sir, how are you? How do you feel about being uh, set apart as the gay colleague? Everybody knows he's gay now, motherfucker. Okay, miss, and what's your name? Megan. Megan, okay, tell me, tell me your tale. Okay, so I was dating this guy, and he loved... I'm her like, brother, this is creepy. Okay. <laughs> it's not creepy yet, man, but if it involves you, it'll get creepy quick. I started, All she said is I was dating this guy. It's like, fucking, I can't even listen to that shit. You fucking dated somebody? You saw it. It hasn't gotten bad yet. That'd be cool though. He's like, no, I know the end of the story. I burst into a room. All right, so you were dating this guy. Okay. Hold yeah. the mic up to your mouth, would you? Okay. Think? I mean, yeah. I don't mean to, that sounded very bad. Yeah. Something a gay colleague might say. He's just a friend, I'm sorry. Okay, no, I get it, he's gay, we all. Okay, so he, his little fetish thing was like ass play and I, I hated it. Somebody just gasped. That's, My sister. that's so low on the freak scale. Yeah. Ass play. I, I don't know. I grew up in the San Francisco area, so ass play to me, I learned that in kindergarten. That, that, actually, I'm just having a crazy memory, and that is not a good one. Okay, so, okay, so he was in ass play. So um, I didn't really like it. I, it's kind of like a... What did he want, region. exactly? So he just likes to touch, massage, whatever. He liked his ass played yeah, with. Exactly. Okay. So, I came up with an idea. I had this so you didn't want to do it? Why? Because you were like, ew, doo-doo? Or what was your... Like, yeah, doo-doo. Doo-doo, no, right, right. Like, fair enough. Was there any... There wasn't any on it, but you no, were just like... No, like, I don't want to did you, finger did you, it. Right, and you didn't have anybody in your life that you could talk to about ass play, right? Not really. There was nobody nearby, no kind of colleague of any sort. Exactly, not yet. Nobody you could reach out to and say, do you know anything about this? Is there doo-doo? Exactly. Nobody at all to talk to. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you could have asked your brother. That would have been... Okay. You're the one that said this is creepy. Now who's creepy, motherfucker? So you could have asked me. I love ass play. I thought this story was creepy until I realized what it was about. Ooh. So he wanted you to poke it? Or what, what's that? Like, he wanted know, fingers in it? Get up in there. And, you know, get up in there. Around, you know? Well, you know, there's a thing in there. I it's know, like the, the little... The yeah. Prostate. Yeah, the prostate. And, yeah, it's real I nice. I know. It really turns them on. I got it. Yeah, okay. Listen, don't, I'm not the guy. Okay. Don't be Anyways, mad at me. Okay, so, so he wanted I, you to finger his butt. I came up with this great By the idea. way, if anybody is disappointed in the content of he wanted you to finger his butt, just know I'm not, this isn't me. I, all, my written jokes are all about like, you know, Oscar Wilde and Thoreau and stuff like that. Unfortunately, the vulgarity is coming from this young lady and her brother who's really into it. No, I'm sorry. You know, a lot of guys aren't into it. I know I'm interrupting a lot, but that's what I'm doing tonight. A lot of guys aren't into ass play. Straight men are, are like very uptight about ass play. I actually think this guy sounds cool. A lot of straight guys are not into ass play because they conflate it somehow with like homosexuality, which is such a weird thing. It's like, well, what's the connection? Like, it's a, it's a butt. Like, everyone has a butt. Like, we all, gay, and that's the one thing that unites us all is that we, the only thing that's true for every person is that we all have a, a butthole. And... That's the only thing that's true for every person. That's the one, that is the thing. I believe 2 Corinthians says, we all have a butthole. I, I don't mind it. 
I'm on his team so far. Yeah. Go ahead. You haven't, I haven't allowed you to tell your story, so I don't yeah, know what happened. Fine. So, okay, so he wanted it. You didn't want it. So you guys had a conversation about it. And no conversation. No so, conversation? What did you do? How, how did he tell you? Did he just idea. scoot towards you or whatever? Um, I have a great idea to use a toy, one of the women's toys, put Look, it sure. in there. Right? One of the women's toys. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, like a little vibrator or yeah, something a like that? Yeah, little vibrator. Okay, well, I insert, it breaks. What the fuck? Yeah, what the fuck? Wait, what kind of women's toy was this? One was it a Sardorovsky crystal or something? Did I pronounce that right? It didn't feel good coming out. And it didn't feel good going in. I get that. So you put a vibrator in his ass and it broke? It broke. Fuck. You really aren't into ass play, huh? You're like, never again! Let that be a lesson to you. Is it still vibrating? It stopped, it broke, it wasn't it? two pieces, so it was a, I don't know, it was a dually thing. And a dually? And so the, I only That's put cool. the one It was a dually to a fucking hot, fat dual exhaust. It was a sick Dodge Cummins. Stick that dually in there, brow. So it was a two-piece, like one to, one to play with the clit and yeah, one to play exactly. with the butt, with the, right. the, the vagina. Right. But so in this, what I did you... I was using the one side, right. which broke off right. into the anal region. Right. And I stand up. You stand up. And I go, holy shit, and I start laughing. That is so nice of you. And then he goes, he That goes, is so what? cool of you to just stand up and be like, <laughs> you're never gonna shit again. And proceed to start laughing. And then I call my best friend. Wait a minute. Is he still on the floor with a He's small rubber bed. rabbit yeah. in his yeah. asshole? Yeah, exactly. And you're just like, hold on, I just gotta I'm make laughing. a quick phone call. Correct. Gay colleague, what do I do? Exactly. And what, what did your best, what did you tell your best friend? I started laughing, he got pissed. Of course he got pissed. That's such an awful move. He was so vulnerable too. His legs are in the air. There's a woman shoving a dildo into his ass and then it breaks and she just goes, ha ah, ha ha. I'll be right back. I gotta make a quick phone call and tell everybody I know. So he got mad, what'd he say? He said, hang up the fucking phone. Yeah. Then, uh, I gotta tell you, I'm really on his side so far. <laughs> so then... Why um, did you call your best friend? I, I was in shock, I couldn't believe it was happening, and I thought she'd well, have Is she some kind of crazy freak, no. or what's her... No. She's like, oh, you got D12, that's what happened, huh? Here's what I you do, you gotta get a nice wire hanger, cover it in duct tape, pop that bad boy in there, punch him in the stomach, it'll pop right out. <laughs> So you hung up and then? Hung up and then he said, help me get it out. And I said, no. You're terrible. I don't like the app. I didn't want to Yeah, but you injured up. him. He wanted it. No, he did not want it. He didn't want that as well. well he Although maybe no. he did. It'd be kind of cool if he had ejaculated the moment it broke. He's like, Stop. that's exactly it. So what happened? Did you go to the hospital? No. So then I you can mean, now I feel like you're mad at me in a way. I eventually like assist him verbally in how he can get out. Can you talk me through it? Pretend like, I'm the guy. Hey. Hold on, hold on, hold on. The, the, pretend I, let me do, let me get into character. Yeah. yeah okay, so character. I'm the guy. I, what is it that's in his ass? Like a little rabbit? No, it was like a longer, like oh. a, it was almost like anal bead type of thing. Okay, so yeah. I, it's in my, and it's broken yeah. off. Yeah. And he, uh, so I'm him, so it's like. And I have the other piece in my hand. And you're on the phone. Oh, you've yeah, hung up at this hand. point. I have the other, yeah. Uh, okay, so I'll be him, okay. hurt him. It, how do you know? It was small. It was just in there. Okay. I feel like... He 
you know, maybe know 100% how this works. But okay, so so tell, help me, help me, ow, my, ow, this is kind out. of what I wanted, but not exactly what I wanted. Help, get what it do, out. And I said, get, stop squeezing, because that was, makes it oh, go, that, you know, He was clench, clenching? Yeah. That is, that does seem yeah. like a bad move. You know move. what I mean? Yeah, so okay. it goes probably deeper. Okay, is that right. what happens? I don't right. know. I don't know. Um, I've never been in this particular situation. Right either. So I proceed to say, hey, like, let's maybe go sit on the toilet. Okay. That's a good move. Okay. Right? So, yeah. Like, did you walk like, him in? Lab? Like, No, he's a grown oh, no. man. Go sit on the toilet. I mean, he's a grown man, but at this point, he's like an injured... He allowed me to do it. I mean, it was... Have you ever killed anyone? Have you ever taken human life? <laughs> no, okay. So you walk... So he walks in... He's walking into the bathroom, and yeah. he squats on the toilet, and then what do you say? I said, you need to relax. With that dulcet tone, I'm sure it was easy. Okay, you need to relax. And does he? Does he relax? No. No. Has, it sounds stressful. He has anal beads up his ass. Right. right. Okay, okay. Yeah. So I was like, okay, like, just like put your finger up there and like kind of massage it, try to get it out. Like, you can do it. You can do it. That's nice. Yeah, That's yeah. really cool. You're very, being very supportive at this yeah. point. You got it, buddy. You got it. Yeah, crawl in Get that butthole. Yeah. yeah. Well, eventually, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes later, finally he relaxed and I think he's drained the poo and then got it out. So, however, but it came I did out. find out this is the best. Oh, good. The toy. I can't believe we haven't gotten to the best yet. So far, this has been lovely and I've enjoyed every second of it. The toy was recalled previously. <laughs> It was a, a faulty toy. Oh that? my God! Did he ever go into a class, an ass action lawsuit against the company? Give it up for her! What a story! What a tale! What an amazing story! Thank you for sharing that. Wow, that was wild. We're cooking with we're cooking with ass here now. This is good. I'm here with Mosher Kasher. Um, so I think a good place to start. Uh, is with how crowd work is bad or can be bad. Uh, and if you'll indulge, I want to tell a, a short story about um, when I stopped liking crowd work or traditional, the idea of crowd work. Um, By the way, you're not the first, honestly, comedy journalist who I've gotten the impression like, I'm not positive they love crowd work. Yeah, no, I mean, I I have, but I I have a specific memory that preparing for this, I remembered. I was like, oh, this is when I decided... Or learned, oh, it can be bad Great. because I thought it was good. I think everyone, I think everyone, is the first time they see it, they can't believe someone did it. Yeah, they're like, he just made that up, right? But so I used to go to Comedy Cellar. This was like 15 years ago. I used to go to Comedy Cellar a lot with my friends, and um, they would always want to sit in the front, which for those who are listening is like the splash zone. That's Big like. Time. You're coming here to be making fun of. There's every comedian just going to go through, see what's interesting. It's like, oh, there are a couple less about that. So. For the most part, as a table of guys, they'll be like, "You guys are gay." Yeah, I, I, I already knew <laughs> yeah, exactly. what was coming yeah, before yeah. I came. It's like not they didn't ask any questions. They go, three guys, you guys are gay," and then, but um, like they've never heard of friends before. <laughs> yeah, no, they literally are going to go back and sit at a table of guys and think right. it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah upstairs they're yeah. like, "Oh, fellas, we found the gay guys." <laughs> yeah. So, um, but at one time, a, a comedian I will not name, but he is sort of of the. The upper echelon of those guys, the comedy celery, tough crowd with Colin Quinn sort, um, said something effective calling me Harry Potter. And especially at that time, my glasses were rounder. Um, but he called me Harry Potter. And I don't remember if I thought it was funny. I was like, okay. 
But then I just, by the way, I want to say I relate to this very strongly as just as a white guy with roundish glasses. I've, I was Buddy Holly for a long time Mm -hmm. and then something changed and then I've been Harry Potter and where's Waldo ever since. So, and then maybe it's a year later, that same comedian performed at my college and I, I, I mentioned like, oh, you called me Harry Potter once. And he said essentially like, oh, I call all guys with glasses Harry Potter. And I think I immediately became really cynical about what it's used for. It's like when you were watching SNL and uh, the artist is revealed to be lip syncing. Yeah. You're like, this was fake this whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, again, not talking about sort of the your, your current album, but in general, speaking from your point of view and the the prevailing wisdom with comedians, what is bad about crowd work or what can be bad about crowd work? Well, I, I reject the premise I think that what is bad about crowd work is the same thing that's bad about material is that sometimes it's bad and sometimes it's not good. And people go, oh, that's that's lazy. It's like, well, it's lazy because you've seen lazy people do it or you've seen people that are masters of it do it like it to me. That question is it's like saying, like, well, what is bad about, uh, you know, about guitar uh, solos. Well, yeah. sometimes they're bad and feel really hacky, and it's just like, are you going to do the same? Dun, 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 wow, wow, wow. <laughs> but um, when crowd work is good, it doesn't feel canned, mm-hmm. and it isn't canned. I think some people do use it as just lube. Yeah. Right. It's funny that about the track that we're about <laughs> yeah. to talk about that I would bring up lube, but they just use it as a sprinkle of lube. Let me get this. My wife got great advice early in her career, uh, which is get them laughing before you even start talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she does this trick when she comes out that, that always gets a laugh. It's before she speaks. I actually do a, a, a thing also. So that sometimes can be what crowd work's job is. It's just like, sometimes I call it opening for myself. Mm-hmm. I come out because somebody will just have gone on. I come out, I do bang, 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 bang. Let me start the show, right? Yeah. But when I'm really in the zone or whatever, the show is this amalgam of what's happening in the moment and the material and the audience and it's the most magical I think that comedy can be is when there's like sparks happening. I think when the comedians who don't like it and I can't remember where I saw this tweet but it's something like crowd work is essentially I don't have material and that's your problem. <laughs> Which is That's a funny tweet. <laughs> I can't remember. I disagree strongly but <laughs> I, I like it. But I think that is the prevailing wisdom right now with your in your case but I think the prevailing wisdom is it's using the audience as a crutch because right. you're, you had, you booked this gig and you don't want to do any material, but you don't want to do anything, but you still want to get laughs or whatever. Right. No. I, and, and what I realized about this album that I, that I put out was that it's the first time I've ever put out an album that has a rhetorical <laughs> uh, bent that's yeah. separate from the, the comedy and the yeah. funniness of it. It's also like, I'm trying to, uh, I don't like finger wagging in comedy, but this is the first finger I feel like I've wagged, <laughs> yeah. which is no, I reject that. I, I so reject that because for me, the nights at comedy clubs where I've enjoyed things the most is when I've seen what I think of as the masters of yeah. crowd work who are doing something totally different. It's similar. It's in the zone of thinking like Ornette Coleman or some, you know, jazz musician is a, is a lesser and less prepared musician mm-hmm. than is, you know, Bob Dylan yeah. or some songwriter who's got, I know what songs I'm going to do. They go like this, dung, 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 we're done. Yeah. Um, do you remember the first time you did crowd work or the first time where it worked? We, I don't remember the instance, but I remember a phenomenon, which was when I first started comedy. I remember I wrote my first joke, uh, which was 
light years ahead of where I was comedically, which mm. is probably the only reason I'm a professional comedian. Cause I wrote my first joke was like actually a good joke. Yeah. And then my next hundred jokes were horrifying and just the worst. And what but, do you remember the first joke? What? Yeah. It's, it, I actually put it in my first special and it's uh it's about it, schizophrenic pride, mm. uh, and it's basically it's the name of the track, and it's basically about how homosexuality used to be considered a psychological disorder, but now we know that it's not. Long story short, blah blah blah. How cool would it be if in fifty years from now we think of there we think of schizophrenia as not a psychological disorder? How cool would schizophrenic pride we yeah. can be? Da-dun, da-dun, da-dun. But it's a sophisticated yeah, yeah. bit. <laughs> it might not have aged well, but it's a sophisticated bit for but, being the yeah. first joke you ever yeah, wrote. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so because that was good, that got me in the door, but then everything else after that was just like not good as it shouldn't be. And I would supplement it with messing around. And I don't even know where I got the idea that you could mess around because <laughs> I didn't grow up watching stand up. It's not it wasn't a big part of my childhood. And I remember Louis Katz, a very, very funny comedian one, and truly one of the best joke writers uh maybe in stand-up period. He's like, I call him like the R. Crumb of comedy. He's mm-hmm. like a, a wizard of the dirty joke. Came up to me and we're old friends and he started about a year before me and he basically did an intervention. And essentially the message was like, you're not good enough or seasoned enough to be this loose and, uh, you know, to be performing like this. You can't just come up and fuck around. He's like, you have to write jokes. So then I disappeared, not literally, but then I like went into the lab for a couple of years and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I got self-conscious about it and I would write jokes and material and material. And, and then I came back and I would perform that for a couple of years. And then at about maybe the the six, uh, the five, four or five year mark in standup, I had this revelation about myself as a performer is that I am an incomplete performer if I am not uh, combining this improvisational mm-hmm. skill that I have. That's just, it's not me. It's not a me show. <laughs> if you see me, that's why I hate doing late night. Yeah. Because it's like a uh, stand up on late night because it's like, you're just not really getting a picture of who I am as a performer, who I am as a performer is, you know, I have my jokes and then I go where the, I go where the energy takes me. So, um, I thought a good place to start with talking about this track is I was listening to your WTF interview, which you did in 2010, which is an unbelievable amount of time ago. Yeah, that uh, is true. Oddly enough, I don't even think you can get it anymore. I, I think you got to like pay a subscription. <laughs> yeah. Oddly enough, it is you're the episode right before you is Patrice O'Neill, which oh, you wow. sort of reference in the beginning of the, um, in the, this album. So you mentioned a review you got in Indiana where the guy goes, I wish he did more crowd work. Uh-huh. And you said to Mark, um, you realize, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking. He doesn't know what a show is. He goes, if I go out and do 45 minutes of crowd work, that isn't a show. So <laughs> fast forward. Fast forward. So how do you make how do you make it a show? How did I make uh, 45 minutes of crowd work a show? Well, that was my that was the challenge that I was trying to meet because, like I said, over the years, I I accepted who I was as a performer mm-hmm. and grew to kind of embrace it and to resent in a very small, you know, uh, lowercase r, resent the idea uh, at the of that tweet, which is the crowd work is this sort of <laughs> yeah. inferior filler, this crutch. Um, but then I I'm not naive to the fact that like it feels it can fe- can feel very temporary, and that's honestly that's part of what's really beautiful about it because when you're in a crowd. And a master practitioner of crowd work is doing, I'm not saying self-referencing, I'm just saying. One master practitioner, <laughs> which may or may not be Moshe Cash. I'm just saying, if you see one of the people that's really good at it, it's like this gift 
that the comedian is offering that crowd that night. And they know it. I think they know it. They yeah. go, wow, this is special. This night is for us. And no other show will ever be this show. This is its own show. As opposed to if I tour with an hour of material, every night will be the exact same show. I'm not saying that as a critique. I'm saying there's something very special about mm-hmm. offering a temporary gift to a crowd. That said, how do you take that temporary gift and turn it into something that feels a bit more permanent? And that's why I came up with the concept of this album, which was rather than uh, talking about the elements in the room and rather than talking about the things that I saw, I wanted to ask these very specific questions to elicit stories from people because I figured every every human has five or six stories that they tell at every party they go to when they're trying to be charismatic. Every comedian has probably 30 to 50 and I... And Doug Stanhope, I guess, has like 700, <laughs> yeah. right? So it's like in the, in the pantheon of how many stories you've People got. Uh, so I figured if I could get those stories, it would feel more permanent. Mm-hmm. And I could still showcase what I do as a as a as an off-the-cuff performer. And I, I think it really worked. Did you work out the prompts of like going to different shows? Yes. How, how did you land on the prompts that you had? Um, well, by trying it, yeah. trying different stories. I, I, one of the questions that didn't make the cut uh, was uh, what's your weirdest I had two actually that I was really hoping would work out and they just didn't uh, one was what's your weirdest celebrity encounter mm-hmm. I was hoping to get a really good story yeah. I remember one guy goes oh I once thought I saw Wolf Blitzer <laughs> but then it wasn't him I was like okay cool although um, I did get one and maybe I should have put it in the album based on what's happening politically a guy because it was in DC where I recorded it yeah and um, and a guy I was like I was thinking maybe politicians, I guess some hot politician. And it wasn't much of a story, but a guy said that he once uh, took a piss next to Joe Biden. Mm. And I was like, did you see that hog? <laughs> I got to know. How is it? And he, But he didn't see yeah. it. And it felt like a real wasted opportunity. <laughs> I feel like the people want to know. What were the prompts that worked? Um, the prompts that worked. Oh, the other one that didn't work was uh, Supernatural, some a ghost story. Mm. But the prompts that, I, that ended up in, in the album were your greatest sex story that's the easiest one yeah and uh, at a certain point i had to be like enough i, I stopped by the end of the weekend because i taped four shows and consolidated them into the album uh by the end of the weekend i stopped asking the sex one because i was like i just can't I, I it's an embarrassment of riches in a bad way was, yeah. and i did it in dc specifically because i had this notion in my mind that these people would be like sophisticated i'd be like oh they're dc people they'll have like some taiwanese nuclear secrets yeah, and yeah. it was just like one sex thing after another so it was sex story your uh, law enforcement interaction, the wildest mm-hmm. law enforcement interaction you ever had. Um, what was the craziest thing that ha- ever happened to you on drugs? What was the most embarrassed you've ever been? And then I think the final one was, um, is there a story that you really want to tell that I haven't covered in my prompts? Smart. And, yeah. And that was the last story of the album. So you go out, you do your little intro. <laughs> I don't know why I wrote it little. That's so condescending. Uh, and you ask people if they have any sex stories how many hands are you seeing? What's the vibe just when you're doing the like you're, you're saying this is what it is. And then you're like, OK, now you guys need to start offering your material. What is the energy at that moment? I mean, when I started to uh, describe the premise, I mean, people bought tickets knowing I was taping yeah. an album and I think they knew I was taping a crowd work album, but I don't think they knew what that meant. Uh, because no one I don't think has any, ever done a crowd work album like this. This yeah. is its own kind of concept. And um and but Big J, I talked to him before uh, before I did it because he'd done a series of crowd work albums and he did a television show of crowd work. And I performed on um, 
on his a version of that show, a live version at uh, Comic Con called it's called What's Your Fucking Deal, mm-hmm. and uh, he had a, a comedian running around with a mic and giving it to people, and so uh, and I called Jay and kind of picked his brain. What do I do? What did you do? And he was very helpful, and and so I just asked the question, and the first person who raised his hand, the first person I spoke with, the first, it was right in the front row, mm-hmm. he told the story of uh, going to his uh, childhood home. His mother had visitation of him on the weekends, his father during the week. He came home one week to see that there were like nylon straps on his bedposts. And he's like, that's weird. And he like tied his, you know, his girlfriend like tied him up. They had sex. He came outside a- into his living room and his mom was like, oh, did you see the straps on the bed? And he's like, what? You put them there? Why are they there? Long story short, his mother had been operating a bordello out of his childhood bedroom during the week while he was at his father's place. And when he told that story, I had this flood of relief. I was like, we're done. I mean, not the album's done, but like, we're all good. This is going to work. Is the... The track that we're talking about on is that actually the story that happened next, or is it from a different night? That's a good question. You know, one of the things that I do in crowd work that I do well is that I am able to um, create callbacks within crowd yeah. work. There are moments in one interaction that then gets like brought back up in this fun way, and almost all of the the callbacks seem to work. It's hard for me to suss out what. <laughs> Which show, because I I use multiple shows for sure, but which show was, I don't think so. I don't think that the next story was from that night. I think the next story is from the next night. All right, let's talk about the clip from your album. So, um, again, uh, either some story was told. This is clearly not the first story of an evening, just the nature of how you start this this track. And you get, does anyone else have a story? And this person we now know is Megan raises her hand. Are you immediately trying to read her are you reading these people like what is their deal no not at all no and and you, uh, invariably with a a concept like this you're going to get a dud or two for yeah. sure or, or some weird stuff that happened i mean there was there was uh there was a, a, a one story in particular this guy stood up and i thought it was going to be really cool because it was about immigration and he was a, a, a an undocumented immigrant but it he was so high and drunk he just kept calling me Mosher and saying I was dope, and I was like, "Damn!" Because like it would have been great to have an immigration story yeah, on yeah. here, but but no, it was literally person raises their hand, I go, "Okay, you, what what do you got?" And yeah. I was hoping the prompts were sufficient enough that I would get the content that I wanted. So I, I want to go through a few moments and see if you kind of remember what you were thinking or how you reacted to it and sort of how it yeah. plays out. Um, so immediately you ask her what is a pretty standard uh, crowd work question, which is, are you on a date right now? And she goes, no, this is my gay colleague. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. a gift. I just feel like that's the thing about crowd work that's so fun and exciting, especially when you're into it and you're not doing it as filler, is that you get these like un- you get these unbelievable gifts. Yeah. Like, like the fact that she said that, I was just like, well, I mean, I wasn't thinking it, but it was just like. Oh my God, thank you. Like, thank you for just offering the first words out of your mouth are this like absurd. No one would ever say that. Yeah. You shouldn't say that in public. You would never go, have you met my gay friend? I mean, you really hope you wouldn't say that. Um, and, and that was, uh, yeah, that was fun. And then, so she starts and she goes, I was dating this guy. And, and then her brother goes, I'm her brother. This is creepy. Yeah. And at this point, are you getting a portrait a little, is the picture sort of filling in like who these characters are? 
I remember her voice was like kind of gr- gravelly. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this woman's seen some shit. This is going to be, I, uh, this might be fun. I like, you know what I, I, I can say is part of crowd work in general, like I said, is just you walking out into a tightrope and hoping that the rope goes all the way to the other side. And you never know especially when you're trying to get a story out of them. But what you do know is I like this person's attitude. Mm -hmm. Like this person is cool and fun and has a good energy and will give me what I want, you know. And and she, in particular, this woman, her energy was that she was kind of antagonistic towards me. immediately. Yes, annoyed with (laughs) me. And I loved that. I thought that was so fun. Whereas like the guy before, the the strap guy, he was very sweet and like demure in this very endearing way. She was kind of, awful and i loved that about her yeah it's really interesting that you know in some of the cases it's like it you you create these two men comedy routines or you know and the first one it's like you guys are telling a story together it's almost like the scars and you're tagging back and forth (laughs) or this is like you it's a classic two-man routine where you for some reason don't like each other while you say it's like a ventriloquism act right like the dummy hates me and i just keep going yeah exactly and i I did get a bit a bit of a picture the fact that she said my gay colleague i automatically have a little bit of information about what kind of person you are yeah and not even in a bad way i'm just like the person who would even think to say that is like you know probably not like your uh pod save america type of person you know what i mean they're probably like a little bit saltier in a way yes and then and then her brother saying i'm her brother this is creepy i got a little more information there it's like okay so you're plussed by her sexuality you know i love this mm-hmm. and that line in there that was I, I was happy about was he's like this is creepy and all she had said was i went on a date with a guy it's like there's nothing creepy about this so she as you know it's essentially like as she's telling her story she she asserts what the premise is is you know she's talking about this guy because his little fetish thing was ass play and i hated it yeah <laughs> which um which you then you go into explaining that on the freak scale that is not that big of a deal it will it really does feel like entry level like what's the first thing you do after sex after you get through sex what's the ne- what like i guess role playing <laughs> and ass play those are like i i sort of feel like your entry level like we're going to get things are going to get a little wild around here but uh so it didn't feel that wild, and I and I think I was saying something about like that I'm from the Bay Area, so maybe maybe I have a skewed perspective of sexuality. Do you have a sense of why you would go like let me have this rhythm be interviewing this person? Why I was interrupting her so yeah, much? Yeah. I think there was two things happening. Um, now that I'm thinking of it, because I uh, I haven't analyzed it yeah. as as in depth as you have, so I, I'm enjoying it in real time, <laughs> yeah. like coming up with what was happening. One was. I sensed the antagonism. Yeah. I don't think it was real antagonism. She, I think, was having a good time the whole time. But I sensed the antagonism that she almost, in a weird way, had decided her character. Yeah. That she was going to be this kind of, like, sassy broad that was, like, barely interested in talking to me and annoyed that I was doing the premise of the thing that she'd raised her hand to participate in. So I was enjoying that, and I started to lean into that a little bit and interrupt her in ways that were fun. And also... Um, Which then goes immediately to the next part where you interrupt her sort of twice in a row. Yes, and meta comment on the fact that I'm doing it because <laughs> it's almost fun for me. But then the other thing that happened, you might be interested in knowing, is that the part where I, and it's not the most successful part of, of the interaction, where I say, the thing, I mean, although it's funny in how puerile it is, where I go, the thing that unites us all together is that we all have an asshole. And then it gets good by the second Corinthians. Yeah. But the reason I was having that reaction is very, very early on in my stand-up career. Uh, I had tried to do, I don't even remember what the joke was. It was just locked in a 
a, a, you know, a drawer mm-hmm. in my brain. I had tried to do a bit about men that uh, have gay panic about enjoying ass play because they think it's gay. And I don't remember what the bit is. And yeah. I couldn't effectively bust it out because it was gone. But it was essentially on that. It's like there's nothing gay about it. If it's a woman and a man, why would you even go? Why would your brain even go there? Uh, so there was something happening where I was yeah. like pulling out a dusty old file <laughs> and just going like, is there anything in there? Yeah. And there there kind of wasn't. But enough, but it ended up really fun. Yeah, it definitely felt like of all because you know, some people use crowd work as a way to jump in material. I, I think Drew DeFriedland is probably the most yes. extreme example where like he'll ask people questions and he has like seemingly 500,000 jokes to respond to everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, it did feel like. Oh, I have a thing on this, and you're like looking for, and you hope by the end of the <laughs> sentence you figure out what the joke was. Well, that's the other thing I was realizing listening to that track because I haven't listened to it in quite a while. Um, is that l- that analogy that I used is th- that you step out onto the high wire and you just hope that it goes all the way to the other side. Specifically in this track, there was a number of different moments, but in a fun way, not in a panicked way, where I could feel myself going like, "Is there anything? Is there anything? Is there anything?" And then you know, like Second Corinthians yeah. was. I found my way out in yeah. a in a really fun, awesome way that got a big laugh. But in reality, <laughs> I knew what I. You can feel it in the track. I'm just going. We all have a butthole. Everybody has a butthole. It's like, <laughs> what is this guy? What am I talking about? I don't know where this is going. Yeah. And then something popped into my brain. Um. So she then says the the big twist, which is, um. Well, I inserted it breaks. Yes. And I want to stop right there, um. To get a sense of sort of what you're thinking, where you're like, well, now it's a story. It's it's not just sort of like I had this weird boyfriend or whatever. And especially when I'm talking to people, comedians who are improvising or riffing, I, I want to get a sense of how their brain works in that moment. And it seems like there's sort of two examples, which is they're sort of not conscious at all. It's like a complete flow state, right? right. Like when I interviewed Reggie Watts, he's like, I start and then the show's over and I don't uh-huh. know what happened. Or... It's hard to think of an example. It's like you're like Jason Bourne or like Sherlock where like your brain is like 10 brains and it's all happening at once. What does it feel like when you're in this state where you're like, oh, now I have all these things are happening. I have to like essentially do two things at once. I have to talk to her. I need to be thinking about whatever that's going to happen next. I think that it's more Sherlock for me, which is that I'm simultaneously allowing my reactive brain. I mean, I wish I knew more about brain science to understand what part of me was, was operating. I allow my reactive brain to just be having fun in the moment, reacting and, and responding because it's happening in split seconds, real time. It's, it's like a a couple of the moments in there was like, I said something, I got something, I popped back with Mm -hmm. something else. And then at the same time, Uh, Like, especially when you're doing a real uh, regular headlining hour, when you're doing material, you're also rifling through your material to figure out, like what you were talking about, what Judah does, you're rifling through your brain to figure out what joke is going to go next. Yeah. And you're analyzing how well the last joke did. And like, there's a lot of splitting happening. I don't think I've told anybody this yet, but I used to have these two, I have these two styles of what I call crowd work Mm -hmm. in my brain. I've, I've like, there's like... These are slang for me and me alone, uh, or maybe me and Brent Weinbach talk sure. about this. There's, there's, this is so dumb. It's I, okay. There's like r- r- riffingtons, mm-hmm. and then there's rantingtons. Sure. 
Okay, so Riffingtons is riffing back and forth. And Rantingtons, the butthole thing, that's yeah. more of a Rantington situation. It's crowd work that you're almost doing with yourself. Yeah, you're so, improvising against the last sentence. Yes, sec- exactly. And like Rory Scovel is a great example yes. of a guy that he doesn't even know it, but he does a lot of Rantingtons. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't right? know he's a Rantington. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's a classic Rantington, <laughs> yeah. doesn't even know it. I know. Um, and so those are the kind of the two spheres. Uh, riffing is reacting to what's been said. Ranting is reacting to what you have just said. And uh, and in in that, I, I don't know. How, what, what was the, the question that brought that up? Uh, but, I mean, we're still talking about how your brain operates right. in these moments. Right. So um, and then I'm also looking for an out always. Yeah. I'm always looking for the end of the conversation. What's going to be the the exit point? I'm always looking for an exit. Because I imagine most people have stories, but they're not professional storytellers in so much as they know how stories should end. I think that's the hardest part for a lot of people. Right. Well, luckily, comedy is so mathematic where you go, okay, all I really need is a good laugh. Yeah. I need the story to end and then I need to find a good laugh so that we can go so that we can move on. So you're almost like your brain is being like, okay, keep track of all things that might be the out for it. That's exactly right. Yeah. So she then gets to a point where she goes and I stand up and I go, holy shit, and I start laughing. I imagine to some audience, they're not being like, ready to vilify this person but that is definitely a thing where you're like this person is like not great their point of view on this thing is not ideal the audience might turn on this person do you have to counteract for that where it's like let's soften let's make sure she doesn't incriminate themselves i have had that situation happen for sure in crowd work definitely but in this instance i think that her and it's so interesting. I never thought about this until today yeah. that her character was so explicit mm. that everybody knew. I mean, she had decided or she was innately the asshole in this yeah. situation. Her perspective on this could have been a very different story. It could have been the same exact story, but with a very different angle. You know, I felt so bad. And like, yeah. that was not what she wanted to do. She, she, whether it's who she is actually, or the way she likes telling that story, she vilified herself. Um, it's interesting throughout the album. I think partly because it's 2019, you're asking all these people about sex, that there's a lot of these conversations that tiptoe around certain issues about consent and what is appropriate. Yeah. Were you noticing that theme? You're like, oh, this really is. I mean, there was the story of the woman who didn't ask and shat on someone's chest. <laughs> yeah. There was um, there was another. There were just a few that sort of felt yes. really dicey. Did I notice it? Um I sent an email to my editor saying, is there any way we can remove the word consent uh, from the album a few more times? Because it it was like 10 different times that it came up. And maybe there's something, I don't know, maybe there's something deeper about it's the landing strip where consent and the gray area of consent Mm -hmm. is also where awkwardness can occur. Because everybody that was telling the story was telling the story from their own perspective. perspective of empowerment yeah. these were their funny stories that yes. they wanted to tell and uh but definitely i noticed that i was like this is interesting how much i have to kind of go like okay well in a different situation this yeah. wouldn't be okay yeah you have to sort of like okay let's just make sure it's clear and like let's soften i mean what you do that's really interesting is you sort of talk over her when it's clear she's going to maybe say something wrong <laughs> yeah 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 um so it goes on um and then you ask her, why do you call your best friend? And then she says, I was in shock. And then you, and then you go, is she some kind of freak? Can you predict? I mean, it's hard to know because you're not that conscious of it. But you're essentially like, oh, we're almost falling to the rhythm of two-minute routine. I'm going to say this question. She'll say whatever. And then I will set up myself to talk about. Right. Well, I, 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 I think I genuinely was curious. 
Mm-hmm. What what would be the impulse to call a friend while you're in a situation where you've put a sex toy in someone's body and it broke? That would never occur to me. Oh, interesting. I would never call someone. So I'm like w- immediately afterwards. I mean, in get the up, moment. laugh, call. Yeah, I would laugh. I could see myself doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But calling, it was just like. So then I was like, I I, I think I genuinely was just curious. Like, is yeah. this some like sex friend that you have? But then the part where. Uh, she said she's going to verbally help him out. Then you're like, well, this is a scene. By the way, yeah, I would like to say that I do sometimes ask questions hoping for a specific answer yeah. and that I get often. That you'll, you know, where I have, I've locked a punchline in my mm-hmm. brain if I get the answer that I think I will elicit from the question. And then if I get it, I pop the, the punchline out. And if I don't get it, it just goes into the dustbin <laughs> yeah, and yeah. nothing c- occurs there. Um a similar thing where it seems I mean this is clear that you're like oh which is partly why this story in particular works almost like a written bit because at this point in a story if a comedian was doing it this would be a good time for a full scene act out yes yes <laughs> so you go like can you verbally walk me through it yes is that sort of it, I mean you're probably not thinking that you're probably like oh this is a good time and it's also like a perfect setup because she said oh I verbally did it in listening to it again, I was thrilled that I made that choice, but it definitely was in the moment. She said that she offered me that it's another gift. And she and I was like, oh, take me through it. You know, let's do it. Let's break this out into I'm the character. I'm the guy. Yeah. You do it. And then I wasn't planning it, but it, I was glad that it was there. You're like, this is what I'm doing. You're yeah. like, exactly what I've been looking for was this exact type of moment. And then because I get that we're getting into what's happening in my brain. I said, take me through it. I didn't know I was going to do the first punchline, which is me screaming. Yeah. But then when I said, take me through it, then I did know. Then I suddenly did know. I yeah. go, okay, I I am going to get into character. And yeah. I think at the moment probably that I said, let me get into character in my brain came up. Scream. Scream because I'll be in pain. And it also, you're like an improper pair where you have an antagonist relationship right. where she will want to do it exactly how it is. Yes. But yes. you're interrupting and the sort of, I'm in this character screaming. I and I need to abs- absurdify this a bit so yeah. that so that I'm in control a bit. Yeah. And so the scream, I mean, he probably didn't scream like <laughs> yeah, that, you yeah. know, but I just somehow I was like, yes, that'll be really good. And then the line after that that I really love, I was very proud of in rehearing it is this is kind of what I wanted but not exactly what I wanted. <laughs> yeah. To me that really that, that tickled me. Um so it kind of winds down, she goes eventually like 20, 20 or 30 minutes, it came out. So you're probably, at this point, you're like, how do I end this yes. thing? Yeah. And you had no idea. That just like a screen, a perfectly written Save the Cat screenplay, <laughs> there was a end of the second act twist that I hadn't seen coming. So, and then she goes, the toy was recalled. Yeah. Can you walk me through then what happens to then get a joke at the end? Well, it was an amazing, it was an amazing twist. Actually, I... I I feel like maybe there was a part of me that knew that she was trying to get somewhere. She did earlier in the story. You can kind of hear be like, and she wanted to mention this earlier. Right. And you talk over her. Yes. I think that in instinctively, or maybe I heard that, I knew that there was, because this is this was my premise in going in, and it proved correct, is that people have these stories, mm-hmm. and they tell them, and they know them, and they know the rhythms and the beats of them, most of the time when you raise your hand, you're going, I know a story that I could tell here. Yeah. I've got, so I knew that she had a rhythm to this story and I sniffed yeah. like I, 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 you know, endorphinly sensed like that there was some, maybe something else happening. 
And when she offered it to me, it was it was it's perfect. Yeah, because no one would end a story they've been telling so long. And clearly she knows the story with being like, and then after 20 minutes it came out. Exactly. So yeah. you're like, there has to be more. And then and clearly it's a story, and you're like, this is a story rhythm. Um, listening back, I realize you essentially do what I guess you would call <laughs> ranting tins, which is uh, now we've codified it. It's mm-hmm. in the comedy lexicon. You laugh and it's a faulty story. Did he ever go and you start saying class? You're about to say class action, and then you realize mid saying "cla." That's right. It's a pun. Isn't that cool? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'm tooting my own horn, but you're right. I mean, I said it, so I tooted it. That's right. It has been tooted. I I I heard that, and I it was literally in that moment. As I was saying a class action lawsuit, I was like, oh, no, no, it is. I have my out. And this is happening in the middle of a word. Yeah. And uh, that excites me because I don't know what's happening in the brain, but it's like fun. It's a type of pun that in another context, the audience would be like, you're a professional. How dare you? (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Do you think about it? You're like, this is, you know, because I think a lot of comedians, especially comedians that have sort of like quick brains that that think of jokes and sometimes they're bad, but they still like there's the fun in saying it. Yeah. That this is a place for it where you're like, oh, this is just showing off that I thought of this thing. And they're all on board where if you said that at the beginning of a set, people are like. Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely right. And it's also it's a silly thing to say beyond whether or not it's like worth yeah. worth worthy. It's also very silly. But that is part of the way that I approach crowd work is like like uh, it's not serious and it is a little silly, but like. I was doing an interview for this album back when it came out and somebody was talking about one line in the uh, Burning Man story where I asked, well, what was the theme that year? The opioid crisis? Mm-hmm. And he goes, um, "Would I really loved it. But then I thought, would that be worthy if you if it was a written joke? And and of course, like the answer is like, well, no, but that's that's not really the point. Like, yeah. when you're when you're. Um, you know, listening to the dead or when you're listening to Van Halen and they go into this like wild, like improvisational, um, you know, solo, uh, you know, the dead do this thing called going to space. Mm-hmm. And I always, I was not a big dead fan, but I always thought of crowd work like that too. When it's really magical where I can really detach from the act altogether and just go out into space. Well, no, that, that music isn't as, um, perfect as the singles. But it's not better or worse. It's just this other thing. Yeah. And um, and so no, it's not as it, it ass action. Yeah. If I came out, I'm like, uh, so uh, I had a uh, I had a sex toy. And I was using it on my wife in her butt, and it broke. Uh, so we sued. Ass action lawsuit. Might get a laugh. Probably get a groan. Yeah. Definitely, no one's gonna write home about it. But in that moment, it was like it was a a, mo- a moment of perfection. We'll be back with more Moshe Kasher. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child 
didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. We're back with Moshe Kasher. Um, so the story's done, and now she's still at the show. Right. You know, like, are you looking at her in a way that is different? Like, when you're looking at the audience in general, doing this, are you thinking about the audience differently? Do you feel closer to them? Yes, always. Yeah, I feel like we're sharing an experience together. Yeah, like and they're they're part of it in a way that's different. It. In a way that's different than just them listening, but even, you know, comedy in general, uh, and I don't think people talk about this enough, comedy in general, like, it's the one art form that really needs a crowd in order to be full. Mm -hmm. the, you know, it's like it isn't even what it is unless the crowd is there and unless they're reacting in a particular way. Um, and so this is just a further iteration of that. Um, I think a lot of the things that differentiate your comedy from bad crowd work is that it's very pro audience. Yes. You know, it's like, how, how would you characterize the sort of working relationship almost you have with them? I don't recall being a comedian who is like, I think what I'm going to do is be the nice guy <laughs> in crowd work. Yeah. But having thought about it so much because I released this album, I think that, like I said earlier, like that's a thing that is unique about the way that I do crowd work. Like, is that I'm not really insulting them, though I am teasing them, definitely, making yeah. fun of them. And the other thing that I think is uh, that people don't get or miss is that even the person who is the roast insult comedian, he also or she also wants the crowd to love it and, and the person they're making fun of. I don't think there's anyone out there that's like, you know, the classic scene in The Nutty Professor, who's yeah. like, I think what I'm going to do is destroy this one person yeah. to give uh, a fun night to the rest of the people. Like everybody wants the audience to love what's mm -hmm. happening. Yeah. And it sucks when they don't. And obviously it sucks when you don't do well. Yeah. But what sucks is when you're doing a crowd interaction with someone and it's happened to me and they're not into it and they feel hurt. And then it's like, well, damn, this isn't fun anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, you, you've talked about how 
in every audience there's a story, a really good story, and yeah. you have to. And if you don't find it, then you've sort of failed as a performer. And and I mean something more spiritual yeah. than than literal, because obviously in in this audience there were literal stories. That I don't mean story by I don't mean ass action. I don't mean uh, vibrator breaks off. Yeah. But I mean that every crowd has characters in it that we will meet through the night. I don't mean that they all have a story to tell the individuals. I mean that the crowd Mm -hmm. has a story to offer the show. And when done right, when I'm in my zone, like it'll be a situation where people come up to me after the show and they'll just go like, ass action lawsuit. Or they'll go like, (laughs) it'll be a thing that we all experience together. It's like they all came up with the joke together. You just said it. They had an energy that they wanted to give and there was something there and that that they remember, Mm -hmm. oh, that was what that night was about. It was about this thing and that thing. And uh, and I do believe that. You you mentioned it's spiritual. And I I, want to ask you a little bit more about that because I know you majored in religious studies in college. And... Um, and you've talked about how sort of all early societies created a religion for whatever reason. And I think I feel, feel like I've read this, which is sort of we're at a low point in the amount of religion in culture. Yeah. Um, is comedy a good answer for people searching for meaning? <laughs> is it an effective substitute? Your brother's a rabbi. Do you feel like what um, you do is similar? I do think that what we do is similar only in that only in the juxtaposition between our positions and our parents in that I find it endlessly fascinating that both of our parents are deaf and both of us make our living mm-hmm. uh, p- through public speaking in front of crowds in English, not sign language. Uh, I think that's there's something there and I don't know what it is. Yeah. But um, but to the other question, is it like preaching? I guess. But if you're going to comedy for meaning. I think you have gone to the wrong place. Well, that's the question. I mean, like, I think there are some some people where it might be okay, but I don't think as a whole, probably stand up no. holds up to that. And and it shouldn't. And I resent that. Not you, but I resent <laughs> the that. the idea. I, that... I resent the implication in the last ten years or so that the ultimate comedy is the comedy that speaks truth to power. The ultimate comedy is uh, ex- exposing and biographical and and uh, political and narrative empowerment it's like that's beautiful stuff i love it mm-hmm. i love that stuff and it might actually be uh more meaningful than steve martin doing an hour but they're not one isn't superior yeah. comedically or inferior comedically it's either superior or inferior based on what it is that you like like you know uh there's no there's when it comes to like theater it's the same thing you don't go like oh well you know uh slave play is inherently a better piece of theater mm. than is you know noises off or uh hello dolly although okay i mean listen i'm just grabbing <laughs> yeah, listen yeah. the fast twitch muscle <laughs> yeah, isn't happening sure. as fast as it could but you know what i'm saying they're both theater yeah and it doesn't there's no rule in theater that says no 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 the ultimate theater uh deconstructs the political reality we're living in and and talks about ra- systemic racism no that is a beautiful kind of theater and and uh, you know also a be- like mozart isn't inferior to bob dylan yeah and some people might say it's it is superior it's, it's different value systems and you yes. can't be like not every art will work into your value system if your value system is just one th- idea is what good and everything else is not that. and there is inherent good in comedy i've thought about this a lot there is inherent good in comedy which is that it is good for people to enjoy themselves mm-hmm. it is good for people to yeah. laugh and have a good time and sometimes that laughter comes with like great uh, you know aha realization sometimes it comes with tears and sometimes it just comes with like wild and crazy guys um, so you grew up going to raves and you, you've been going to Burning Man 
many years. I didn't know we were going there in this interview. This is a real gotcha question. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. went to Burning Man and no one knows that, even though I feel like <laughs> I've talked about it <laughs> all the time. And I talked to Natasha about it when I interviewed her, um, which are audience centered cultural events yeah. opposed to performer centers. Did, did that influence you? Do you feel like that's something you are chasing? That's really interesting. And I really love the, the correlation. Um, because the whole thing about Burning Man, and less so raves, but more so Burning Man, is that it comes from um, a cultural movement that started with Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and moved into a thing called the Suicide Club in San Francisco, which then became a thing called the Cacophony Society, which then became Burning Man. Mm-hmm. And the Suicide Club, their thing was they they wanted to take human experience to the extreme and they would have like high tea on top of the golden gate bridge they'd climb to the top of the golden gate bridge and have high tea and then the the uh the suicide the cacophony society took that and ran with it they created uh improv everywhere Mm -hmm. uh culture jamming is what they call it they created santa con i know that's not particularly something (laughs) to brag about but at the time there's something unique about it they like famously one of their pranks was that they they put a clown at 10 different bus stops so that the bus pulled up a clown gets on the bus and everybody's like okay clown he's here but then the next stop Mm -hmm. another clown gets on and then all of a sudden there's 10 clowns so there is something about that what they call that culture jamming that I think really attracted me to it. Like the the extreme of people who are unsuspecting all of a sudden being a part of an experience. And yeah. I think there is something in that with crowd work and why I enjoy it so much. I believe in Playboy you wrote a defense of crowd work. Sure. In which you sort of tell this Tibetan monk story. Um, for those who haven't read it, can you quickly summarize sure. the beats of it? Well, I think about this story a lot, uh, not just in terms of crowd work, but in terms of like, life and sort of the immediate nature of like reacting to circumstances like these tibetan monks were hired by the asian art museum in san francisco to do one of their sand mandalas and it's this this thing where they you know the tibetan monks will draw this really intricate beautiful mandala and it's showing the different gates of of heaven and hell and demons and it's intricately done like pouring sand it painstakingly slowly and creating this beautiful mural just in order to eventually you know sweep it away and mm-hmm. it'll go away but this particular time they were hired to do it and people a month into it uh they were doing it and a deranged woman leaped over the fence kicked the incomplete mandala into the air started screaming that there are buddhist buddhist death cults and you know get these people out of here and of course security grabbed her and all the the san franciscans were like appalled and shocked Mm -hmm. and as the story goes although i wasn't there the buddhist monks they were the only ones that weren't having a reaction they just looked at it and go hmm so that's how this was supposed to end you know yeah and to me there's something about that that happens in a show that's got a lot of improvisational elements to it which is that the the audience gets to experience and go huh so that's what this show was supposed to be when i crack that story in the audience if i can do it the audience has this feeling and i have this feeling like that's what tonight's show was supposed to be it wasn't going to be my one hour uh one-man show it was going to be i guess this lady with her vibrator and her brother it's really interesting especially right now where i think for maybe more so than ever that comedy is becoming special focused yeah in a way that i think is good in a vacuum in so much that people are thinking about specials as film things and what does that mean and in many ways you're pushing back against this not saying don't do that we must now only be like comedy is not meant to be recorded but i do think as you said, there is a rhetorical 
prompt to this. Right. We were like, well, remember, this is sort of what we're, at least what you're chasing. Yeah. I mean, I think that every everything that happens uh, has feedback, yeah. obviously. And that's sort of what crowd work is. But also, you know, what happened was uh, Louis C.K. and Bill Burr and a few other people started doing annual specials of really high-level, highly crafted material. And so, and also, particularly with Louis, it was also confessional. Yeah. And so then uh, there was feedback to that. And then comedy started to move in the direction of one hour a year confessional comedy. Yeah. And then some other stuff happened, uh, some political stuff within comedy, which was, you know, this idea, which it resulted in this idea of punching up. Yeah. Right? That that was the important version that was the important kind of comedy is comedy that punches up so then that had feedback so then it was like okay it's one hour it's confessional and it also speaks truth to power or whatever and then uh i i think that that's good i think that that that's good but it's an incomplete picture of comedy because sometimes comedy is just dumb and that's the point of it and sometimes and i think we're going we're having reaction to that too like sketch comedy was able to stay dumber longer if that makes sense, yeah. like stand up was expected to ha- hold itself to a higher truth, and I reject that. I love higher truth stuff, but I also love all the other stuff too. You said at least once that you don't care about the laughs anymore. You just want weird shit to happen. I was also thinking about <laughs> you were famous to the people who listen to Hollywood Handbook on a disaster of a performance to them <laughs> yeah. at Comic Con where no one knew who they were, and it was sort of bombing. Yeah. And they sort of loathe this experience, but you sort of was like it's fascinating as a comedian to have a thing where it just doesn't work. Is well, actually, point of clarification. Sure. What I said to them was, and I think it's because they're not like stand-ups. Yeah, yeah. To me. If you go out and you kill in front of a hot crowd that anyone could kill in front of, that's an awesome feeling. Yeah. And I'm lying when I say I don't care about laughs. Of course I do. That's yeah. just a rhetorical point to get to the punchline. Yeah, yeah. But if I kill in front of a hot crowd that anyone could kill in front of, that's great. A great feeling. But the greatest feeling in comedy is to go out to an antagonistic audience who doesn't want to laugh and find a way to make the show awesome by the end of it. So that's what I was really saying mm-hmm. was Hollywood Handbook on that episode. No one knew who they were and they were confused because that it's such a insider yeah. Uh, humor by the end of the show I thought they were killing and to me that's a much more monumental victory than killing in front of people that know who you are and want to laugh at everything you say so your your last solo special is in 2013 mm-hmm. which is a while ago you yeah. do half an hour in the honeymoon special but that is a especially at this clip a really long time to not have material release what is your relationship to your material anymore is there a reason sort of why this is sort of the release that you did. I think like around that time I heard you were saying like, oh, I'm working on an hour. It's going to be one big story. And this was seven years ago. Right. Well, I uh, I, I do think of my, uh, there, it's less um, strategic than you think. Yeah. I did the hour and then I I toured with, with that one big story for a while. But then I started going on tour just because of my life and what makes my life easier yeah. with my wife and doing this uh tour together because once I got married and we started wanting to have kids, it became the road is just like a endless trudge. And so then we started doing this theater tour together. And then we were like, oh, we should do a third act to, to our show. And we created this like live couples counseling mm-hmm. roast session. And then Netflix said, oh, you guys should let's do a special like that. Got it. So I my you know, I, I my half hour special to me in the Netflix, I don't think of it as a half hour special. I think of it as like a this three parter. Yeah. And 
it is my material, but it's not the hour you're talking about before. Somehow that fell into, it's still there. I still have this hour that I don't even tell anymore. And I probably should record it. I don't feel the pressure to put out our special every year, especially because there's so many specials now that they barely feel special. Yeah. And so I would like to put, I'll put out another special when I'm ready to have it seen or ready to retire some material or something like that. But mostly I want to like, just keep making stuff that makes me happy. You've said crowd work is what you're you're best at. What do you mean when you say best? Like, in your head, what is the distinction? Well, you mean what I am best at for myself? Yes, you, said, you said, not, said that. I am the not, best no, at. No, no, right, sorry. Right, right. You said for yourself, you're what you're best at. Well, truly what I think, um, it, uh, like I, was, I said earlier, what the show is when you see me is a, it's a mixture of of bopping in and out of crowd work into material. And that's what it's like to see me. And yeah. that's what I think I was saying to Mark Marin in WT- WTF in 2010. It's <laughs> like what my show is, yeah. is this offering of my material, but through the performer that is me. So I don't just offer, I'm not a performer that just offers material start here and mm-hmm. here. Uh, I've done that because my first special was more like that was just like, here's the hour that I've yeah. been touring with and here is who I am. But really, if you want to see what it's like to see me on the road or who I actually am as a performer, it's going to include some of this like spacey Riffington Rantington stuff. Well, it's also, I think, at some point a stand-up gets to the point, if they're they're good enough, that it the job of being a regular stand-up is kind of easy. And they have to decide what to do with that fact. And I think some people are like, I like that my job is easy. I'm going to crush every single night. Uh-huh. And I'll be like a touring comedian that every club is happy to have because right. I'll crush. Some people are like, let me go deeper, whatever that means. Let me be more experimental, what it means. And I, I, it seems like this is partly like, well, this is more exciting to at least now that, it, that you know you can do the job. What is a way to sort of push yourself? How would I push myself? Well, I'll tell well, you. Well, this seems like at least the step in that direction. Oh, that I am pushing myself yeah. by putting this out. I tell you, really, the reason that I put it out is because of how special driven everything has become. Yeah. Um, that there was a big part of who, like the thing that I think I'm best at, that people didn't really know of me unless yeah. they got to come see me live, unless they made the choice to come see me live. So I was like, well, that seems backwards. It it seems like you ought to be able to, to have a product where people know, oh, he's really good at that too. Um, you said something on Bert Kreischer's podcast that I found fascinating. Comedians are so incredibly insecure about the legitimacy of their own art form that they don't really believe in their heart of hearts what they're doing is an art form, that they become so defensive that's that what's um they become so defensive of like that's what it is, that's not what it is. Yeah. Um w- which I think is really interesting. What is the sort of solution? to that what is the way out of that i think that is correct i think you see that all the time i mean like 10 years ago it was the divide between maybe alt rooms and club rooms but now it's just sort of like oh it's nanette versus anti-nanette or whatever i mean there's these fights constantly right what is the way out of that it's a good question i i think that like the question that nanette raised is the least interesting question i've I've ever heard in mm-hmm. stand-up is, is that stand-up or yeah. not? Because it's like, well, who cares? Yeah. Like, why does that matter? Like, the only reason that would matter to someone, I think, is if they weren't going, it has no effect on me. Yeah. The only reason that somebody f- would need to ask that question is because they go, how? oh, this is going to affect me. And mm-hmm. if I'm just like being 
Although I'd be lying to say that I don't have any insecurity about the fact that, you know, I'm a comedy first guy and always have been. I, laughter is is paramount. And I, I don't think that anything I've ever put out is attempting to or effectively does like have some kind of like moral messaging yeah. behind it. And I think that's good enough. But but as society moves towards wanting the moral messaging, it's easy to get insecure and go like, is what I'm doing not good enough? The way out of it, to me, it seems a little unrealistic, but the way out of it, to me, is for everybody to accept that art isn't a line. It's yeah. like, it's a it's a mosaic. It's everything. It's like, you know, Van Halen exists, and so does Ornette Coleman, and so does The Dead, and so does Taylor Swift, and so does, you know, Eminem, and the, everything. It's all music, and we're all, everybody's always obsessed with who's the great the, the greatest comedian alive right now. It's like, no one does that with, yeah. like, what's the, the band? What's <laughs> the band right now? Yeah. Who cares? Um, you mentioned the dead, and I want to talk a little bit about it as we wrap up. Um, the partly because I know specifically the documentary about the Grateful Dead was a very big documentary for you, sure. Natasha. Yes, you guys definitely. talked about it, and specifically whenever it came out that year, every interview was like, "Did you watch this doc- this documentary?" Um, can you maybe briefly tell the story of Jerry Garcia visiting the Watts Tower? Let me see if I can remember it. I mean, the Watts Towers are this uh, are this place of uh, of it's an art installation that was done kind of outsider style where just a random guy in the neighborhood built these great towers and watts made of trash and cement and junk and uh then the moment he finished them he moved away never to return to watts and gave them to his neighbor and then the the they they became such a part of the neighborhood that in the watts riots the riot moved to the towers moved around the Mm -hmm. towers and left it unburned and jerry garcia came to um came to the Watts Towers and uh and took a look at it and was like really moved by it and as Natasha said in the podcast we did about the Grateful Dead she, she goes what that he, he was inspired to make <laughs> art out of trash <laughs> which is so rude but very funny um I think the revelation was that he looked at it and he goes like here's a person who like dedicated his life to T- temporary this like temporary thing this thing that like just had no like deep v- mm-hmm. value other than the value he infused it with and so jerry garcia decided and i think it, it i'm not a huge dead fan but i really love the philosophy behind yeah. it he dedicated himself to a life where the music was the point it was not the product that you release it was the experience of playing it and listening to it and having it and doing it which is why i think in great the, the paradigmatic grateful dead concert is first act songs second act for an hour or something they're out in space just like messing around and improvising and it was and it became this style of uh concert going which is that the point was to be at the concert yeah it was not to buy the album it was to be there and experience it and then they start recording the recording the space and then that's what blew them up yeah there's i i found the exact quote that he says at some point which is um talking about this goes the 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 individual artists pay off this idea is that 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 the thing that exists after you're dead you know and i thought wow that's not for me instead of making something that lasts forever i thought i'd i think i'd rather have fun for me it was more important to be involved in something that was flowing and dynamic and not so solid that you couldn't tear it down Yeah, I think, honestly, if you got to the core of what I care about, it's that more than anything else. It's like there's nothing valuable about legacy. Legacy is a lie and a myth because you just die. You know, I always think about like um, famous people 
Like, who do you remember from 2,000 years ago? Jesus <laughs> and the Buddha. And there was a lot of famous people back then. You know, I mean, even like Pontius Pilate, like he's a footnote, mm -hmm. you know, like think about the Roman emperors. They were the most powerful people, most famous people on earth. You remember what? A Julius Caesar, Nero, and one other guy. <laughs> There's like fifth. So even if you get so famous, you're going to be forgotten. Yeah. So the idea of chasing legacy is unimportant. What's important, and I'll tell you, it's probably why I tour with Natasha. We put specials out together. It's why I love uh, uh, crowd work. It's because the only thing that really matters is like, are you enjoying life? Are you enjoying your career? Are you having fun? That, that, and that's why I love Burning Man. And that's why I love uh, nature and the national parks. I just want mm -hmm. to have a good time while I'm here because it's so fleeting. And... I think that's part of honestly what the power of crowd work is, is like everything's fleeting, but we've got this kind of moment together. <laughs> so that sound means it's time for our final segment, which is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. Let's do it. Um, do you have a favorite joke joke? Street joke? Um, I can tell you a street joke about comedy. Sure. You, you must know this one, though. I don't know. Start the joke. I'll let you know. It's an old comedian. Sitting in a diner, eating by himself. You must know this joke. Keep on going. The woman come. The woman walks into the diner and she goes, "Oh my God, you're that comedian." And he goes, "Yeah, I'm a comedian." She goes, five years ago, it was Saturday night. My my husband had died a month earlier, and I was I was depressed and sad and didn't think I could go on. And I saw your show and laughing that night, just laughing, it changed me and it made me think that there was a possibility for a brighter future. And the comedian goes, and she's like, I just want to thank you. And the comedian goes, Saturday. was that the late show or the early show? <laughs> <laughs> That's a picture into every comedian's yeah. ego, if ever there was one. Do you have a joke you regret? Yeah, plenty. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Do you can think of any? Or um, uh, I don't. I don't regret. Regret is useless to me. But I, what I was saying was like, there's. It's regrets the wrong word. Yeah. It's just that I wouldn't tell that I wouldn't yeah. tell them anymore. And I feel like we too often um, forget that people were making comedy at the time that they were making the comedy. Yeah. And it's okay that it was it was different then. And but jokes that I regret regrets the wrong word. But I will say that I listened to uh, I used to have a really uh, long joke, uh, like a fat, it was like a fat joke. It was more sophisticated than quite that. Yeah. But I listened to Lindy West's episode on, uh, this American life about her show, uh, her book. Um, I think it was just shrill, but it was yeah. about fat and fat stuff. And at the end of that, I was like, okay, yeah, I feel like I've moved on from, from that, but I don't know. I, so I take it back. I don't regret, I don't regret jokes. I just, I just, uh, you don't regret that you were the person at that time that did it, but you are now the person who would not do that joke. Maybe so. Yeah. Um, do you have a joke that you wish you could steal? Not in so much as that you would sort of get caught. It's sort of a different dimension. Everything's exactly the same, except for this joke of someone else is now I, your joke. I own. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the thing I saw most recently that made me jealous was, um, was Mulaney's, um, sack bunch lunch. Cause I just loved it. I just loved the, not only, uh, the the concept but also the 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 humor was so it's different from mine. yeah and i would never i i guess no the answer is i don't really want to joke but i always have wished i was weirder mm -hmm. i've always wished i was a weirder performer i always was like 
how do Maria Bamford's and Brent Weinbach's and yeah. Zach Galifianakis's or he's not quite that weird, but you know that. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I always wish I was a little weirder. And I think that is perhaps why I love crowd work so much because it is, it's not weird, but it's inherently more experimental or, mm-hmm. or without rules. Do you have a joke that uh, hasn't worked, sort of never worked? You may or may not still be telling it, but it, ultimately you're like, the audiences are not going to get on board of this, but you'll go to your grave being like, that was funny. They were wrong. Yeah, I definitely have stuff like that. Um, I'm trying to think. You know, the, I have the opposite, too, which is jokes that always work. And I'm like, I don't think this is that funny. <laughs> yeah, I have other stuff, which is audience intelligence tests, mm-hmm. which is I do a joke uh, where I talk about Natasha. And I say, um, it's in context, I say, I'm married to a comedian, Wanda Sykes. <laughs> and if the crowd laughs, I'm like, great, this is a great audience because they know all of the parts of the joke. Yeah. They know I'm not married to Wanda Sykes. They know that that's a, a silly thing, they, the whole thing. And if they are silent, I'm like, oh, no, these people think that these are, there's, you missed the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Oh, can you do an impression of yourself? An impression of myself? Or an impression of yourself doing stand-up, as sometimes people do. Or uh-huh. If someone was to do an impression of you, what they'd, would that sound like? They'd probably go, micro-machines, because I talk really fast. That's great. That works. Sweet. That's the end of the interview. That's it for another episode. You can buy or stream Crowdsurfing Volume 1 wherever you get music. Follow Mosha on social media, at Mosha Kasher. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Art Chung. Research assistance from Amanda Gordon. Katam Shrikashan did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. See us live in Brooklyn at Union Hall on April 2nd. We'll be back next week with Taylor Tomlinson. Have a good one.